All right. Okay, computer, we're back. I took the week off last week. And let me tell you something. We have a very, very special guest, Meltem Demures. She's not a guest. She's a co-host of this fine program. But she has not been on it in a very long time. Meltem, I just went back and looked. May 18th, last time you were on Okay, Computer. Dan, what are we doing? I've missed you, fam. How's your summer been? What's going on here? I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's been weird. (laughs) Really? Good weird or bad weird? A bad weird. So May 18th, that is right when Luna and Luna's stablecoin Terra started to unravel. So basically, what have I been up to? Well, first, Terra unraveled. The stable coin that was collateralized with shit coins and Bitcoin basically lost its peg, saw mass liquidations. Then Luna itself, which has close to $30 billion market cap, became worth zero within the span of a week or two, tried to launch a V2, also worth zero. Then a bunch of firms became insolvent and announced their insolvency. Notably, uh, it started with Celsius. Then it was three era. Celsius operates more like a bank, took in customer deposits, didn't hold those deposits, gambled them <laughs> effectively. Then three arrows, which was operated kind of like a family office, principal capital, plus some external capital, large market maker. They became insolvent, left about a four to $5 billion hole in the crypto market from there, a ton of other platforms in the space became insolvent. And I spent most of my summer trying to plug holes, fix things, Let's put all of that in some context because that was kind of a succinct domino effect, if you will. It was all the FUD that existed about some of these, starting with the stable coins. You've been on on the tape and OK Computer with me, it feels like now a dozen times over the last year. And, you know, my co-host, Danny Moses, on On the Tape, he's brought this up with many of the crypto folks who've come on talking about stable coins and what they're backed by and what the knock-on effects, if there was a run on them. And so I think the way you just laid out what happened starting in May into and still going on. There was Voyager. There's a bunch of other failures of some of these other counterparties, if you will. Is it fairly well contained? And that that is a term that goes back to the financial crisis. Remember when the Fed famously said that the subprime situation was contained? Do you feel that like some of the mechanisms that were in place to guard against, I guess you would call it domino effect of, of something kind of bubbling up, did they work properly? That is a great question, Dan. And okay, containment, I think is a bit challenging here. One of the important issues to untangle, and I'm going to do my best to sort of untangle it for the listeners. There is a fundamental difference between on-chain finance, which requires by its very nature, instant settlement. It requires in many cases, atomic swap. And in many cases, a lot of on-chain crypto finance today requires full collateralization or over-collateralization. There is a fundamental difference between what's happening there and what's happening off-chain, which all of the institutions, firms, entities we're talking about in this instance operated off-chain in the sense that, yes, they had cryptocurrencies, but their books, the way they operated, everything they did was done off-chain. And in fact, it was the entry of traditional 
capital markets practices into the crypto space, quite ironically, that resulted in this series of implosions and then an Archegos-like situation, what we had was an institution that had an enormous amount of leverage. There was no visibility into this leverage. On the flip side, I think crypto lenders became very loose with their capital. They were chasing yields. Everyone was making a lot of money. And so risk management practices sort of went by the wayside a little bit. This is like 2008. This is like, why did Archegos happen? We all got little happy. And so from a technical perspective, there is still fundamental, the same premise of on-chain finance, providing more transparency and making it impossible to have these types of systemic unwindings holds true. The issue is that in order to make crypto capital markets efficient, we started to centralize and introduce some of these organizations and entities that applied leverage without requiring collateral, which ironically resulted in these cascading liquidations that then sort of caused the whole space to become (laughs) a bit unstable. And so again, it's not that the premise of crypto and on-chain finance, or as we call it, decentralized finance, is in any way, I think, diminished by this. The issue is in order to make crypto more efficient, we need to have more traditional financial practices. And those are not managed well. Like CoinShares is publicly listed in my firm. It's a lot of work. We have to provide a lot of transparency. Coinbase is publicly listed. Galaxy is publicly listed. Voyager was, although you know that didn't stop them from doing not so wise things with their balance sheet, which is not a criticism, but it could have happened to anyone. And so I think the issue is the level of opacity and the lack of understanding of these business models has resulted in people making certain assumptions, never taking the steps to prove out those assumptions. And as a result, you know, when people got margin called, they didn't have it. When you were on on May 18th, you said something that I thought was really interesting. You said greed is a flywheel that drives much of crypto innovation. When you think about it, like if we want to put all of that in some sort of context that just happened, it's going to be a bit of a blip, like a footnote in the journey or the development of these protocols and how they kind of compete with traditional finance and how they evolve and become mass use sort of things. And at the time, it was kind of interesting because Bitcoin had just come in from like 50,000 to like 30,000. And at the time, you said, you're always a net buyer of Bitcoin, but I think not yet. You thought it was going a bit lower. Was that because you thought this was going to take a bit more time to kind of work itself out? When you think of the collateral that's being used for a lot of these DeFi protocols, that sort of thing, it's a lot of Bitcoin. And so you thought that if there's more unwind to come, that there's going to be downward pressure on Bitcoin. And I think, by the way, Dan, when we talk about these cascading liquidations and this forced selling working its way through crypto markets, I don't think that's necessarily over. So the insolvencies have started. Several companies have filed for bankruptcy protection to give them time to work things out. As you and I and many other people who listen to the show know, going into bankruptcy and hiring a restructuring firm basically means that, you know, 40 to 50 cents of every dollar are going to end up going to the lawyers and the firms who are doing doing the restructuring. I mean, look at Mt. Gox, right? When Mt. Gox exploded, that had a very, very dramatic impact on the level of confidence in Bitcoin, in particular capital markets around Bitcoin. And we still haven't settled Mt. Gox. Creditors of Mt. Gox are supposed to get paid out 
in the next few weeks, I believe. That's a lot of Bitcoin, by the way, that's going to get given to people. It's a lot of cash in Bitcoin that's going to get handed out. But that's seven years almost. So it's going to take time for this to work its way through the system. And the bigger question is, and one thing we're still untangling, because it's so unclear, because this was done all off chain, right? We can try to do some blockchain forensics to see where assets moved. How many companies, how many projects had treasury capital or parts of their balance sheet at these firms? How many of them chose to bank with Voyager or with Celsius or with other institutions that were acting like interest paying banks, but not managing deposit capital or risk capital in the way an FDIC insured bank would, or you know, a bank with a charter would. It's going to take time to unwind. The other thing we have to remember is a lot of people who may have deposited assets in these different places don't need cash right now, or maybe they're not looking at their portfolios. Typically in crypto bear markets, what we see is people kind of pretend their crypto portfolio doesn't exist because it's painful to look at. I myself have been guilty of it. And then when the next sort of market run-up comes around, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I had an account here. I had an account here. They go to log back in. They want to withdraw their assets. They want to cash out. And so all of a sudden you find you may not have any assets to withdraw. So unclear. The story is far from over, but I think the bulk of the damage has sort of been contained. The question ultimately is who's going to be left holding the bag? In the case of BlockFi, FTX stepped in bought the company for pennies on the dollar. Investors got screwed. So the billions of dollars that went into the company wiped out that at least customers will be made whole. In other cases, no buyers. Some of the stuff that we've seen lately, reports about capital going into VC, blockchain, Web3, whatever whatever you want to call it, it's looking pretty decent this year. And aren't there a number of examples where VC-backed sort of projects over the last few years have just absolutely imploded? Are you surprised looking at some of the headlines that we've seen of late about the capital that continues? I saw there was a story in Axios that said pension funds are beginning to dabble in crypto investing, opening the door for a broader discussion about whether investment managers should the risk profile of digital assets. And that's primarily, I think, rather than like coins, they're talking about VC investing here for the most part. And is it that you're just going to have new cycles of capital that are coming into it? And then maybe they're better informed because they're literally seeing some of the kind of earlier projects of the last few years that have imploded and how to do things right going forward. Is that part of it? Absolutely not. (laughs) Sad to say. Okay. They'll continue to make the same mistakes over and over, right? 100%. Okay. So here's the current state of crypto venture capital. It has been an asset gathering game. There's a barbell happening. There are smaller funds in the space that are sub 100 million that have smaller vehicles, very focused. And then there are these mega funds that basically should have raised probably 100, 150, but could raise more. And they gathered that AUM. I do think that the 2021 vintage of crypto funds is going to be one of the worst performing of all time. The issue is, and I thought the episode you and Rick did with Josh from Lux Capital was great. Yeah, Josh Wolf. Yeah, yeah, Josh Wolf. I thought it was great and spot on. There is way too much capital right now chasing way too few opportunities. And as a result, the ROI of investing in new protocols and new tokens is going down. And so the question is, when you have a ton of capital chasing an opportunity that has been widely publicized, that everyone knows about, of course, inevitably, valuations are going to go up. Competition to get in is going to go up. It becomes a social network-driven game. 
it becomes a marketing and narrative driven game. And it's no longer about the returns, the returns start to diminish. And so where I think the value is, and as an investor, where I'm going me with my very small funds, where I am going is to places where other people are not, because I think the pendulum of where money is going to be made is very quickly shifting. By the way, all of those investors in Q3 and Q4 that were fundraising their mega funds had marked up positions in Luna, Zero, Avalanche, also down massively, and a ton of other projects that six months ago, nine months ago, were printing returns, right? So they're printing these marks, they're not realized. And I think investing in equity venture in the crypto space has also not been without issues. I think, you know, BlockFi is an unfortunate example, Voyager, an unfortunate example. Even growth equity investors who invest in Coinbase pre IPO say they invested at 10 billion, 12 billion, 15 billion. Coinbase, where it's trading right now, right? Like so many tech IPOs, you could potentially be underwater. And I think if we look at the performance of just generally tech IPOs funded by mega venture firms over the last four or five years, the returns, the performance over a longer period of time hasn't been phenomenal. And again, I'm curious to see what returns to LPs will look like. Even on the allocator side, I think a lot of allocators buy brand and marketing rather than returns. There's less risk in buying A16Z crypto or buying Sequoia crypto or Bain Capital crypto than there is buying an unproven manager, even if the returns are, are subpar. That's not to throw shade at any firms, but I do think valuations are still insane. So I'm not really sure how people plan on making money. There needs to be, especially with tokens, you're relying on kind of a greater fool theory right now because there isn't organic demand for many of these tokens. I would say Bitcoin has organic demand, Ethereum has organic demand, maybe a handful of other tokens do. And that takes time to develop. So again, not a criticism, but for a lot of these investors, I'm not really sure how investing in yet another layer one protocol at a multi-billion dollar valuation is going to result in delivering significant returns to LPs. You make a great point, though. I mean, if you think of like growth stage venture investing over the last few years and the exits, they haven't been great. And there's been some fabulous blow ups. If you think about Uber and WeWork and then some of the IPO exits like you're talking about Coinbase or Robinhood, I mean, the list goes on and on in the fintech space. They've actually been disasters. And then if you want to go back and look at some of the more consumer facing like Snap that went public in 2017 at 17 bucks is trading at 10 today. I guess my point is there aren't too many situations over the last, let's call it five years, where those public exits have been home runs unless you were able to sell a high in the public market. Let's just talk a little bit about, it seems like FTX has been this kind of buyer of last resort of all these blowups. If things break, I mean, who, who else is out there? And I think it was like a few weeks ago, Brian Armstrong, CEO, founder of Coinbase, they were talking about layoffs there. They were talking about bracing for a crypto winner. Define that. What does that mean in a way? Because for all intents and purposes, crypto is in a bear market. We just talked about VC capital, and there is plenty of it that's designated for this. We just talked about how the 2021 vintage of VC funds is going to be not particularly pretty, but we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars raised by some very high-profile investors, Chris Dixon, Katie Hahn, uh, Lee Jin. I mean, these are all big funds, right? And so focused on 
a thing called Web3 that it seems to be something that is not pretty well defined at the moment. And so I'm just curious, are those sorts of funds that have been dedicated, do they help put a bottom, at least from a sentiment standpoint or some of the projects that are going on? I'm just curious your thought process and, and really what does a crypto winter mean? What does it mean to you over there at CoinShares? I want to go back to a mental framework here. I think frameworks are really helpful. So MIT researcher Carlotta Perez wrote this great book about a decade ago called Technological Revolutions and Financial Bubbles. And it uses a lot of historical anecdotes from the railroad stock boom, the 19. 19- 20s and 1930s, tech stock boom and subsequent burst. But basically, the idea is anytime there's a new technology, there tends to be this frenzy of financial speculation around it, people throwing money at it, the paper value of that technology decouples from the actual production value. And that goes on for a period of time, then people kind of take a step back and they're like, wait a minute, these things are so out of alignment the paper value bubble pops, paper value drops, and production value starts to catch up because all this stuff that's been invested in starts to get built out and the two get recoupled together. And then that cycle repeats and repeats. And the idea is, is that as these technologies mature, the magnitude of those bubbles and the size of those discrepancies gets smaller and smaller until the technology is sort of quite mature, it's fully integrated into the economy, and the paper value and the production value of that new technology innovation are aligned. So I think if we look at crypto through that lens, it's helpful. And Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures has written about this as well, using the Carlotta Perez framework, others. But if you haven't read it, go read the blog post about it, Carlotta Perez. It's like a great 10-minute read. Ben Thompson from Stratechery has a great one from 2021 also on the Carlotta Perez. He's a great writer as well. Yeah, a lot of people use her framework. If we view the last 18 months through that lens, and as I've said many times on this show, crypto, it has cycles, right? It is cyclical in nature, but there is a broader secular trend. So if you zoom out, right, if we look at crypto's trajectory, it is up and to the right. If you zoom in on specific two-year cycles, we see, literally, you can see this trend. We see these massive spikes in valuation, in invested dollars, all of these metrics you can look at. And then we see that bubble pop. So what I think we're seeing now is like last year was exuberant. It was a bullient whatever you want to call it. It was frothy, 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 frothy. I think throughout the course of this year, we've started to realize a lot of these things that we're being sold on, a lot of it was driving this crazy frenzy of speculative capital is not yet there. That value is not going to be realized. And a lot of these things probably will never exist. There's also a lot of like scammy behavior. There's always snake oil salesmen and saleswomen that emerge. I try not to be one. We're going to get to one thing you're selling that I'm buying that I've been a buyer <laughs> of, All right, but we're going to do it, 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 it. I think the equation is one D equals one B, but we'll, we're going to get, we'll we're, get gonna, there. we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get there. We're definitely going to get oh, there. Oh man, that's going to be my legacy. Well, what but, a legacy. But, no, I know. But, but, look, but, when but, these, but, but when these bubbles pop, sorry, I just want to finish the thought. Yeah, so when these bubbles yeah. pop, basically what's happening is like the market is realizing, okay, the bubble has popped. Now we have to actually build shit to catch up with this value that we have prematurely created. And so I think when you look at these companies, basically what we've realized at CoinShares, what Coinbase is realizing, companies in both the public and the private sector is like, 
okay, we can't rely on this inflow speculative capital continuing to pump up prices and continuing to provide us with cheap capital, right? So it also goes back to the capital asset pricing model. Weighted average cost of capital is really important. Inflation is rampant. So rates going up, right, makes capital more expensive. So if we look at WAC or the weighted average cost of capital, the cost at which companies can acquire either equity or debt, and in the instance of crypto companies, sell tokens, capital is getting more expensive. So you need to conserve the cash you have on hand because you don't want to pay a really high cost of capital because it's going to make your venture unprofitable for you. Why put in sweat equity if you're not going to make money? That's not logical. And so I think what we're seeing is people recognizing, okay, bubble has popped. We need to actually produce value, whack rising, cost of capital rising. So you take those together. And I think a lot of people are taking a step back and saying, okay, cut the fluff, cut the bullshit, cut the marketing, cut the whatever projects, cut the sponsorships, all of that crap that literally was just about marketing and inflating prices. And let's actually deliver things that create value so that production value can be realigned with paper value that's been created. That's it. That's my view. It's very simple. No, no. And that makes a lot of sense. And a couple things have happened. You just, again, we started the podcast with you kind of putting a nice little summary around all the disasters that happened in May and June and what kind of what could happen on the back of that. I think there are a couple other things that are really important footnotes. I think Tesla, who had put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, sold some in, I think, early 2021, shortly after they bought it, saying, Elon Musk saying they're not going to sell, selling most of it in the last quarter. And then also, I think it's interesting that Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy that's leveraged his software company's entire balance sheet, a company that he had been the CEO of a long time, and he sold equity, he sold debt, he leveraged the Bitcoin that he bought to buy Bitcoin. He stepped down as CEO of that company. I think these are going to be important footnotes. Now, they say they're not selling it but they might look to hedge a bit of that on their balance sheet. And then also when you think about retail, I mean, retail, you talk about bag holders. I mean, it's retailers. I mean, retail are the ones when you talk about during these crypto winters where people who don't look at their holdings, right? They don't open up that account or whatever. That means you're diversified, that you have the ability to do that, right? It's a percentage of your investable assets that's not going to change your life if it goes down 70%. And when you think about where some of these coins are, I mean, they're down 80 90%. There are NASDAQ stocks, household names that are down 80% or whatever. Now, if you have a stock portfolio, it's probably most of your investable assets and you got to look at it every day. But if you have a crypto portfolio and it's five to 10%, which I think that is probably on the high end of what someone like you have been advocating for people to participate in this over the last few years, single digit percentage of your investment, then you can do that during a crypto winter. Then you cannot open your Coinbase account or CoinShares account or Coin whatever account and you can and you can wait it out, right? And you can kind of find some of these things. So to me, I, I think it's unfortunate that retail is probably kind of wiped out. But I think again, what you're highlighting And I think what's so interesting in listening to your podcasts and guests from other industries, this is not unique to crypto. We see this in every industry. Who are the bag holders on Tesla? Who are the bag holders on Nikola? Primarily retail. And look, at the end of the day, right, if you read about market microstructure, there are different types of traders. Like the futile traders are typically driven by unrealistic expectations. All it takes is a few stories of people making life-changing amounts of money on Shiba Inu or Dogecoin or like insert shitcoin here. Everyone probably has someone in their social circle that made a life-changing amount of money on a questionable 
scam cryptocurrency or of real cryptocurrency, you probably all know someone in your life who has made a life-changing amount of money on Bitcoin or Ethereum or something else. And so I think that sort of behavior gets replicated and replicated until it spirals out of control. It happens in every asset class we see in every cycle. I don't think it's unique to crypto. What makes it so interesting in crypto is the velocity, the speed at which it happens is just greater and the channels through which it happens, right? Like we had investment banks writing buy recommendations for Tesla and insane valuations. There's one portfolio manager who I will not name, who's been very bullish on things that have performed very poorly and has publicly articulated this and encouraged people to buy these things. I think same thing with crypto. It's just that it happens on social media and in a way that is driven by memes. And this is where you can get into 1D equals 1B. And like the memes and the channels of propagation in crypto are very different than TradFi. It's the same thing. It's just different people hawking it. It's the same behavior. But instead of like your boiler room folks, instead of your PMs, instead of your TradFi pundits who go on TV to show their portfolio, you have people doing it via memes and funny videos and these new sort of mediums that I think from the outside looking in look absurd. It's the same thing, just a different medium. I'm part of the financial media, if you will, the traditional financial media. And I get it, like shilling your bags or this and that, whatever. I mean, listen, you know, one of the reasons people tune into any of that stuff is they're looking for like people that they trust, that they find interesting, that they maybe find funny or whatever the hell it is they think are good at doing the thing that they want to do. Right. And so to me, I agree with the different channels. For whatever reason, it just seems a bit scammier on some of these new channels, maybe because they are so new to us. And so you guys, what do you call it? The Degens, the Degens, the this or that or whatever. Degens. We're trash pandas. <laughs> You're trash pandas. You're Degens. It's natural to you. I mean, this is how you will communicate these sorts of ideas. And I think you guys are having fun with it too. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here. And I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash okay. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. So the other day, I was on vacation, and, and I didn't see it until a day or two later here, but you posted, I don't know, was it an emergency Twitter spaces here? I'm looking at the tweet right here. You took a picture of it, just something you kind of hand wrote, Sunday worship and emergency spaces to discuss the prophecy and the epic bang. 1D equals 1B. Get in here. Tell me what was going on. Why did you decide to do this? It was a Sunday here. And then there was Decrypt wrote an article because I guess, as you kids would say, the crypto dick butts started pumping a little bit after this. So what happened here? I am so happy this is my calling card. (laughs) 
<laughs> I first I was the lady who said shitcoin in Congress. Now I'm the dick butt lady. So uh, my track record really is just perfect, Dan. Okay, so here's what's happening: memes are culture. Memes are the transmission of new ideas. And memes are also becoming money, right? One of the coolest things that is happening with NFTs is we are turning cultural capital into financial capital, and we can now trade culture and memes in the form of an asset. And actually, I will put the link in the show notes. I'll send it to you. I just wrote a great finance-driven blog post about market microstructure for NFTs using crypto dickbutts as an example. But what I liked about these cute little pixelated cartoons that use one of the oldest internet memes, by the way, Casey Green cartoonist created dickbutts. They became an internet meme uh, through this cartoon. Reddit really helped propagate the meme. But this is a very, very old internet meme, just like Dancing Baby, Nyan Cat, and some others. And uh, so these little pixelated characters were created, 5,200 of them. I don't know where the number came from, but 5,200 of them. Um, They were minted in August of last year, started minting for, I think, 0.2 ETH at the time. It took the collection six months to mint out. Like people were not excited about it. Just random people bought them, thought they were funny, thought they were cute. And um, I discovered them in November. didn't mint any because I was doing other things. I didn't really get into the NFTs. I was busy with Etherox. (laughs) But then in February, I was like, these are weird. I'm into it. Let's see what's going on. My premise is that the strongest memes will create the most value. So the cultural capital that is getting created around NFTs, a lot of NFTs are trying to have like roadmaps or utility or do all these things, but all the financial value has already been extracted. Crypto dick butts, there is no roadmap, there's no utility, there's no token, there's you don't get a tote bag or a t-shirt. We ain't got shit. <laughs> it's just a funny meme. So what's really interesting, what started happening is people started getting really interested in them. And a group of us started getting excited about them. We talked about them. <laughs> just, it's like, how do you make the meme as absurd as possible? We started hanging out and having little events. We threw an event in New York in May that was mostly funded by individuals who donated to this cause. I hired ballet dancers and we did this whole like eyes wide shut occult ceremony thing to just try to amp up the mimetic value here. And people responded to it. So this Sunday, for some reason, like we hit this interesting cultural inflection point where there was just this mass of people who all collectively decided, I want in on this meme. I want to be a part of this, this joke of this moment in time. And so for me, what's interesting about participating in these things and sometimes helping propagate them is it's so interesting to observe how cultural capital memes and financial capital can converge in these really interesting moments in time that lead to this convergence or cultural consensus around a specific meme and then cause that thing to go crazy. We saw it with Dogecoin. We saw it with Shiba Inu. We're now seeing it with crypto dick bets. will happen time and time again. But delving into that and really understanding it is really fun. Also, I don't want to talk about more tokens. I don't want to talk about all of these companies that are financially insolvent. Like I want to laugh with my friends on the internet. So we're trying to spread some levity. But why do you have to pay two ETH to do it? 
So when I bought my number 3227, which is a beautiful, clean dick butt that you helped find for me, isn't there a way to participate in the meme and not actually have to commit so much capital to it? And here's the other thing. I'm looking at OpenSea. I'm looking at the properties of number 3227, again, a very clean crypto dick butt. And it says that 86% of crypto dick butts, they have a butt. Only 49% have a dick. And so like to me, there's something off there. And I'm just curious because mine both has a dick and a butt. Doesn't that make it more valuable? No. So thesis on NFTs, if it's not a grill, it's a floor. I write about this in my piece on NFT market microstructure and what trading NFTs as a strategy-driven trader as opposed to like an emotional trader slash collector looks like. So a lot of different traits. There's a dick butt out there for everyone. We always like to say in the crypto dick butt community, you don't find your crypto dick butt, it finds you. The second thing I will say is like crypto dick butts are not for everyone. Some people think they're stupid. A lot of people are like, this is dumb. And I'm like, great, then you don't have to participate. Nobody is forcing you to engage in this dialogue at all. You also don't have to buy one. The main place we hang out is our Discord. If people want to come hang out, it's open to everyone. Everyone can participate in the meme. Have a good laugh. Nothing we do is gated by your token. So it's open to all. The fun thing about memes is they spread. And then the cool thing is people are now creating derivatives, right? So again, one of the cool things is it's like, okay, if thing is working and just cultural significance, which I think crypto dick butts are like within our own little microcosm of the universe, having their own moment of cultural significance, a lot of people can then come in and create derivatives or compliments around it and bring more people into that meme or that moment of cultural consensus. So again, I think it's been interesting for me. A lot of people are like, oh, this is so unprofessional. I'm like, this is literally my profession. This is what happens at scale in my industry on a daily basis. So me understanding it and how it works is actually paramount to me understanding how my industry functions. And again, I think it's understanding in this new world where we have this new technology and this new culture, how does mimetic transmission work? And how does mimetic transmission impact the way we invest, the way we communicate, the way we create narratives, right? Because these cycles are very much narrative driven. And as this industry evolves and matures, the way we propagate and transmit memes is also evolving. So part of my job is understanding that by participating in the culture. People don't get that. They may laugh at it, but I do not think you can effectively invest in this industry if you do not understand its culture, because it is unique. Yeah, I I will tell you this, since we've been podcasting since the start of 2021, you've been so consistent on that. However, anyone's opinion about any of these memes or any of these projects or whatever, you've always been right out there just saying, listen, if you're not enjoying it, then you should not be participating in any financial sort of manner because most of these things are not worth anything, right? Other than the experience and culture, I guess. I find that very interesting. I also find it interesting, though, just to kind of reset the thing here. I mean, in general, Again, I have to make predictions about just sentiment and where I think things are going in broad markets here. It seems like overall right now, you're probably less bullish. I've heard you over the last couple of years or so about the environment. And that's consistent with, I guess, how you've been really since late winter, early spring or so. Again, I am a participant in crypto culture. 
again, I see it as an investor reflected in valuations and the types of investors who are at the table. Like when large growth equity funds start telling me, yes, if you send me projects, we are happy to invest in them at a four to five X markup right after you do. That to me is an indicator that things are a little bit out of hand. So look, we go through cycles, emotions go through cycles. At the end of the day, I still think this is the most exciting, most important thing I could be working on. There are many wrinkles to it. My perspective will continue to evolve, but my love for memes, my love for the culture will always be intact. That will continue to be expressed in different ways. Dick butts are not an investment. They are a lifestyle. (laughs) NFA, D-Y-O-R. But again, we like to have fun on the internet. It's not a bad thing. Well, you know what? You are tremendous fun to chat with, to follow on the internet. And, you know, I followed you into the crypto dick butts and I'm having the time of my life. So Melton Demirers, CoinShares, thank you for joining us again on OK Computer. Good to be back. And let's not do so long next time, Dan. I've missed you. All right. We'll do it again soon. Thanks, Melton.